Okay. Sip of coffee. Calibrate the caffeine. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. As I was thinking through these different problems, I thought there's nothing harder to move than a socially constructed barrier. Yes, that's exactly right. This week, battery recycling, fertilizer, roadblocks to decarbonization, and much, much more. We dug into the mailbag and answering all of your questions, big and small, about the world of climate tech. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so around, I'm told nine months ago or so, I had guessed 18 months, but just goes to show you that I have no concept of time at the moment. Around nine months ago, we did our first ever mailbag episode of this show, or Ask Me Anything. I don't know if you want to use Reddit terminology uh, on the show. And my guest, or I guess I was the guest, and my questioner was my friend Sarah Golden, who is the VP of Energy at GreenBiz. And that episode came about because Sarah had texted me um, telling me that we should do an Ask Me Anything where she should ask me questions because of a number of reasons, one of which I will note was our world-renowned rapport. Or maybe you said just renowned rapport, and I'm assuming that you meant world-renowned. So, Sarah... You're back. Hello. Welcome back. Hello. Happy to be back. Do you think that our rapport lived up to the standard that you set for it when you texted me last time? During, specifically during the recording of the podcast last time. You mean as opposed to just like our general rapport? Yes. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. No, I mean specifically on the podcast. You know, I did not re-listen to the podcast. Sometimes I get weird about hearing myself talk. Do you re-listen to the podcasts that you record? Occasionally I do, but it's usually, I, I agree with you, nobody likes listening to themselves or watching themselves uh, give speeches or anything like that. I do it sometimes because in really meaty episodes where there's actually like a lot of insight in the moment as I'm having the conversation, I blank out. And so at the end of it, I'll be like, man, that was an awesome discussion about ammonia. I wish I had heard any of it. And so occasionally I'll go back and listen again, but usually I don't. I don't know. I don't think I listen to this one again. Yeah, it would be a wonderful practice for me to do because I always learn a lot when I listen to myself speak. But 
I did not do that for ours, and I just trust that it came through. One thing about these is that I I wake up to just like roll out of bed and do these. So I think one thing I'll note is last time I did, I was still on my first cup of coffee. I don't know what cup of coffee you were on at that point. So hopefully, you know, I can live up to the liveliness of your caffeinated state. How's your caffeine calibration right now? Still on my first cup. All right. Welcome back. We're going to, we'll see if we can top however good our rapport was last time. We got to top it this time. Uh, And like last time, I'm going to hand it over to you. We've uh, solicited questions from our audience for the past couple of weeks, and uh, you've got a list in front of you, so I'm happy to pretend to be an expert on a bunch of things for the next 45 minutes or so. Great. The first is from Mike Hogan, PhD. So Mike sees a clear way chemists and physicists can contribute to climate tech, but Mike is a basic biologist. So he wrote in, What are the challenges in green tech that you think are best solved with a biological solution? And in particular, he's talking about molecular biology and genetic engineering. Oh, that's very specific. I mean, I guess I'll I'll answer a broader question about biology. I've for a while wanted to do, I think I will do this at some point, uh, a deeper conversation, particularly pitting, not that they're actually in opposition to each other, but pitting biology against electrochemistry. Because I think there are a bunch of places in in decarbonization where there are electrochemical pathways to do something and there are biological pathways to do something and they're sort of competing with each other, at least in some cases. On biology specifically, I mean, there are some clear areas within quote-unquote climate tech that like biology is well-suited, right? So acceleration or improvement of existing biological processes being the obvious one. So take nature-based solutions for carbon removal and stuff like that. everything to do with agriculture, like those are all categories that are inherently biological and biology obviously has a big role to play to help solve those. Beyond that, you can look at more, slightly more esoteric, but also really important from a climate perspective thing. So using biology to change animal feed, right? Um, I guess that falls into the agriculture bucket. Um, And then you get into some categories that I think are interesting and where there starts to be this kind of... uh, emerging battle between biology and other disciplines. So take chemicals, for example. So there are a bunch of companies that are using synthetic biology approaches to produce commodity chemicals that in a way that does not use, uh, they're not petrochemicals, doesn't use petroleum as a feedstock and potentially doesn't use as much energy in the process. So you're reducing emissions that way. What we've seen so far is some companies having a lot of success producing sort of... um, more complex chemicals that are higher value but smaller volume commodities. So Solugen would be the sort of classic example of this. This is a private venture-backed company with a, I don't know, $3 billion valuation or something like that. At this point, they're producing a bunch of chemicals uh, using synthetic biology with you know that are chemicals you probably haven't heard of generally. And the question is, can they, or others, produce the chemicals that you have heard of, the really big commodity chemicals that are less complex, but huge markets and where the big emissions impacts come from. So we're talking about stuff like uh, ethylene and propanol, a bunch of these big commodity chemical categories, which are much bigger markets, bigger decarbonization impact ultimately, but um, less complex molecules to create and processes where sort of traditional chemical refining uh, and or potentially electrochemical processes might might be better suited. So anyway, it's a long answer to the question. I think biology 
is best where biology already exists or where biology can create um, a really great alternative. And the other category, I guess, it, worth mentioning for for bio approaches in climate is is food, um, alternative protein, you know, uh, cellular agriculture, all that kind of stuff. That's all biology, clearly. And then the final one I'll note back in agriculture world is, you know, you mentioned I think gene editing. There's there's a lot going on there in um, climate resilience land as opposed to climate mitigation land, right? So uh, drought resistant crop production, that kind of thing. Um, those are a big deal if you're if you include resilience in your sort of category of climate solutions, which some do and some don't. And obviously, there biology also is a big role to play. I saw recently that you tweeted about uh, geoengineering and the Mexican Ministry of the Environment that moved to block um, solar solar geoengineering experiments. So where do you see the state of geoengineering right now? Oh, man. It's been such a wild ride in that little corner of the universe for the past few months. So we did one episode on solar geoengineering a while ago here. So anybody who hasn't listened to that one absolutely should. It's It's totally fascinating and sort of mind-blowing you know, there's just a ton we don't know about solar geoengineering. Um, but one of the things that we we do know as pretty likely is that it's possible you could do solar radiation management um, that would deliver substantial reduction in warming for a very, very, very low cost relative to all the other approaches that we're seeing out there, particularly this emergent world of carbon removal. And that has been known for some time, but it comes with these like gigantic caveats, which are there's sort of unknown ecological effects. There's a huge sort of geopolitical concern. If it's that cheap and that easy to do, how do you control who does it and how much of it and all this kind of stuff? So there's all these big questions. And the science has been kind of like plodding along and there's a good debate that there should be a lot more funding for that science, but people are worried about it because if once you kind of let the cat out of the bag, then it's tough to put it back in. Meanwhile, along has come a few, a small number of private sort of semi-venture-backed startups. I don't want to call them truly venture-backed startups because I don't really think any of them have um, received kind of mainstream venture capital funding yet. But this one in particular called Make Sunsets, uh, has the approach of we're just going to do it. We're we're really not concerned with all the concerns about it. Um, we're not going to like build stakeholder consensus. We are literally just going to do it. Um, and they did it on a very very small scale in Mexico, and then they went public about it, and it it got some news, uh, not as much as I think it could have if people appreciated what you know the, the potential ultimate impact of it, but it got some news. Uh, MIT Tech Review wrote a really good article about it. It's sort of like saying, wait a second, like these guys are, they're just doing it. Uh, and this is dangerous. And and because they did it in Mexico, then like the Mexican government, I think was the first one to act in response to that, which is what you're referring to. And they are looking at banning it as a practice, which I think is probably the right thing for the moment and probably is what any reasonable government would do if somebody just showed up and said, hey, we didn't ask you for anything. We didn't get a permit there. In fact, there are no permits for this kind of thing yet, but what we're going to do is spread a bunch of aerosol into the stratosphere and see if we can create a cooling effect on the planet. So I don't know where it goes from here, but I think a swift regulatory or political backlash to like totally unfettered uh, solar geoengineering is probably the right thing. Sounds right. Next question is from Benjamin Tink. So Benjamin works at 
Marble Climate. Do you know about Marble Climate? I do. I know Benjamin. Oh, great. I had never heard of it. It sounds like a cool organization, and it's described um, as a place that builds deep tech startups that slash emissions, remove carbon, and cool the planet. So my first question is, what is a deep tech startup? And to be clear, that's not the question from Benjamin. That's just from me. What is a deep tech startup? <laughs> that's so funny. So that's often the term that I use in describing what I do, right? So I, my job is not this podcast. My job is at EIP. And I, I lead this fund, we call our Frontier Fund, which when I'm describing it in shorthand, I say it's our deep tech climate fund. And then occasionally somebody asks me the question you just asked, which is, what is deep tech? Um, and deep tech is a term, I'd say, that has sort of taken hold in Silicon Valley circles, but often means something a little bit different than what I mean it to be. I also don't think there's a perfect definition. In Silicon Valley world, you know, it means sort of like, you could think of it as being sort of frontier tech, but in Silicon Valley world, that can also mean things like next generation ML. Um, you know, I think some people were calling like some of the stuff that you're seeing now with generative AI, like six months ago, people called it deep tech and now they probably don't. In my context- What's, what's ML? Oh, I'm sorry, machine learning. So like machine learning, AI, you know, all the next generation um, computing stuff, like quantum computing, all that you know, people would have bucketed into into deep tech. In my context, in the climate context, I mostly I mostly mean um hardware, like physical stuff, uh, and you know, true technological innovation on physical stuff. So like something that has not been done before, uh, that is physical in nature. That's atoms, not bits, generally is what I mean by deep tech. But like, you know, the more techy it is, the more deep techy it is is another way to think about it. Okay, well, here's the actual question from Benjamin. Why aren't there more investors launching innovative project finance shop? There's nothing in Europe. Are there new ones in the U.S. outside of the usual suspects? So that is a very good question, I think. Um, project finance, I think, has long been the biggest challenge for a lot of these deep tech or hard tech companies bringing new products to market within climate and energy and so on. And I think that there's a part of it that is fairly well solved and there's a part of it that is definitively not solved. The part of it that's fairly well solved is if you have a pretty mature technology with a good operating history and customers who are bankable and uh, you know financial structures that are well known, like project finance uh, for renewables, for example, and even for grid-scale battery storage and stuff like that, it's just infrastructure finance now. It has it's available. It, the cost of capital is not high. You could argue it could be a little lower, but it's it's infrastructure capital in the way that you want it to be, and you can get that stuff built and financed. I think what Benjamin's probably referring to, and the part that um, that has always been trickier, is before you get to that point. So you're bringing some new technology to the market. It's not considered. To either it hasn't scaled up enough or it's just generally not considered to be de-risked by big project finance providers. And that, you know, there have been a bunch of folks creating innovative project finance vehicles of one kind or another, but it really is not a solved problem. I'd say in particular, the uh, first of a kind, financing the first of a kind of anything, um, maybe first three of a kind, let's say, is still incredibly difficult. And we see lots of companies in our portfolio and outside our portfolio who are 
forced to pay for that stuff themselves, basically, because there is no project finance available for it. And as a result, they have to raise a lot more corporate equity in order to do so. And that's expensive money. And it's harder to come by in today's environment than it was 12 months ago. And it just remains a really big problem. There have been some shops that have spun up that are trying to do something clever, like combine investing in companies and their projects at the same time, or invest in a company with like a right of first refusal to the assets. Those, they exist. um, But I don't think anybody has figured out a way to really scale that. And so if you're if you're an innovative company with a new technology, you need to bring a market and you need to build the first one of them ever. You still, I, 90% of the time at the moment, I think, end up paying for it with your the money you've raised from venture capital funds, which is, which is less than ideal. Which is all to say, uh, Benjamin, I don't know. I mean, I think it is actually an intractable problem because, um, because the project level returns on those first projects are rarely very good and the risk profile is often very high, like inherently it's the first of a kind thing. So if you don't solve that with some kind of discretionary concessionary capital, then um, I think it's difficult to do. And the other thing is you just, you have a hard time getting to scale because the whole point is that this technology is going to graduate from the type of thing you would do to the type of thing that, that JP Morgan would do. Uh, And so you if you're the one focused on just the sort of first few of a kind, then you have to continually cycle through new technologies and new companies because you want them to graduate beyond you very quickly. That means that your cost of like getting up to speed and doing your analysis and de-risking and all that kind of stuff is really high for any given transaction that you're doing. So I don't know what the solution is, but I would love to see more of that stuff out there because it, it does not feel like a solved problem to me. Do you think the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to change anything in this landscape of people trying to figure out new financial mechanisms? Um, it it improves the economics for some things. So in the categories where the IRA created new tax credits or increased the tax credits, it certainly makes the economics richer. That's in hydrogen and carbon capture and renewables and standalone battery storage and all those areas. So it, it helps in the economics. And then it does provide this gigantic slug of capital to the DOE loan programs office to do a bunch of things, some of which can be first of a kind projects. With that said, uh, you know, the LPO is really well set up for big stuff. And even there, first of you know, they're not intending to take a ton of technology risk either. So you have to be fairly mature and at a fairly large scale for the for the LPO funding to make sense for you. So for some companies that will help solve the problem. But for many others, uh, I think they still have, they have to graduate to the point where they're ready for an application to the LPO, let alone actually winning the funding. So yes, I think in some cases it'll help. Okay. Let's get deeper into this VC funding. The next question I have is from Brendan O'Hare at Noble Brendan. Uh, Noble is uh, Brendan's blog, which focuses on economics and technology and politics. So he asks, would love to learn more about how the recession in technology will affect the climate tech industry, particularly with regards to VC funding. Yeah, I mean, um, we don't know yet, right? Just as we don't know what's going to happen in broader tech over the next couple of years. What I will say is that I would say climate tech funding has been slower to decline than traditional tech funding in the, in the venture world. So there was a, a quicker, bigger... Uh, kind of turn downturn 
in broader tech world than there was in climate tech. I think it is, you know, you could start to see this in the data that's showing up now. It is starting to hit climate tech, but the the downturn has not been as severe. And I think, you know, what is happening is you just have two countervailing forces. On one hand, you have the broader macro environment, which is uh, challenging. You have high interest rates and possible recession and this sort of pullback in tech generally, and that all pushes in one direction. And then the specifically for climate tech, um, the market forces themselves push in the other direction, which is to say at the si- same time you've been having all that stuff happen, we've had the Inflation Reduction Act, we've had Russia invading Ukraine and you know this spike in natural gas prices and disruptions in the energy markets at the same time. And you've had this, I think, increasing recognition of like a climate tech super cycle where you know, the train has left the station on deploying renewables and electric vehicles and a bunch of that stuff. And so all the categories that kind of cascade from that have this underlying bullishness that investors have held on to. And so they're fighting the sort of current macro environment against this sector-specific optimism. And the result of that has been, you know, we're not in the boom times that we were 12 months ago or 18 months ago, but it's also not as dire from a a VC investing perspective as it is in some other categories, right? Like crypto or some of the ones that have taken really big hits. So what is it going to happen over the next couple of years? I don't know. Nobody does. But I do think there is still, there's still a lot of dedicated capital out there in venture capital world that has been raised specifically to be deployed into climate tech. And there is still this belief that this, this trend um, toward decarbonization across sectors and industries is going to hold and is like a you know multi-decade trend that should persist through multiple economic cycles. So I, th- I think we'll continue to be more resilient than the overall tech world. There was a perspective that came out when the first tech layoff started in November that said that it would be good for climate tech. And the theory essentially went that there's still money flowing into the space. These climate tech companies are hiring like crazy. They need the best minds to do incredibly hard things. And in the past, they've struggled to compete with the compensation and the perks of big tech. So now there's all of this talent that's been freed up. And so that may be a better situation to reach climate breakthroughs just because startups are more nimble and are able to innovate better. And so that's a better use of that workforce. Do you agree with that? Or does that mirror what you've been seeing? I mean, it's tough to be, it's tough to say that like layoffs are a good thing ever in any situation. So I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that exactly. I would say the, the two silver linings for climate tech of the downturn in the, in the tech industry have been one, what you said, which is there is, there already was a big wave of talent coming from traditional tech into climate tech that was happening. It's been happening for years. There've been all these great organizations spun up specifically to help people who are, you know, really high caliber individuals and want to find their way into climate tech to sort of figure out what their home should be. And that is accelerating if anything, um, so I, I think that's good for climate tech. Just more great talent is, is good. The other thing is, I actually don't think it was a bad thing that the moment when it happened that we started to have a little bit of a, um, deflating of the bubble in climate tech. I think we were, we were at risk of, you know, getting, it was, it was very hyped. It was in every 
sort of VC conversation right alongside crypto and a bunch of this other stuff. And it's not that it's not now, but I think, you know, kind of everybody has got their eyes open real wide on what they're investing in as they're making investments at the moment. I think that's probably a good thing because I don't want... I don't want us to end up kind of getting over our skis in climate tech. I'm extremely bullish on the market and the opportunity, but I was a little nervous to see how rapidly the kind of broader VC world was flooding in. And I'm, I don't mind seeing that pull back just a little bit. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. The next question is from Alex at Tigercom. What do you think is first among equals from the list of barriers facing the clean energy transition? And I'm about to give you a list. Are you ready for this? Okay, I'm ready. This is the, these are the barriers. I got it. Yes. Permitting, stabilizing supply chains, workforce development, critical minerals, transmission, storage, or grid stability. <laughs> It's like the, I don't know how many you just listed. It's like the seven horsemen of the climate apocalypse. At some point we it's were- It's seven. Oh, is it seven? Nice. Uh, I knew that, obviously. Um, you know, it's, I've been talking about wanting to do an episode of this podcast where we do, uh, you know, we, we've done this this deep decarbonization draft a couple of times where we draft the technologies that we think are most likely to contribute the most to decarbonization. I've been thinking about doing the inverse of that where we do an episode on the things that we think are going to be the biggest barriers to decarbonization and drafting those. So I've thought about this a little bit. Um, it's a it's a tough call. I would say, here, I'll tell you what I don't think from that list is going to be the barrier. I don't think storage is going to be the barrier. I think we need a lot of it, but I think we're going to get a lot of it. So let's assume we do, and that's not a huge barrier. Um, grid stability, I do not think is going to be the barrier. Again, it's not that it's not a challenge, but I see enough solutions out there getting deployed. Now, both of these, storage and grid stability, the ability to get enough of them are a function of a couple of these other ones that I think are going to be the big barriers. So, But grid stability in and of itself is not my top concern. Um, stabilizing supply chains, that is a temporary phenomenon which I think we will solve. We will have more supply shocks, I'm sure, over time in various commodities, but I don't think that's the thing that as I think about the next 10 or 20 years of decarbonization is going to be the problem. So that leaves permitting, workforce development, and critical minerals and transmission. All right, I'll keep running through them then. Critical minerals is a big problem, uh, but you know, we, over multi-decade periods, we're very good at figuring out ways to extract the things that we need from the earth if we really need them and if the price signals are there. So 
are we going to have big run-ups in prices for critical minerals? We've already seen this with lithium and to a lesser extent with cobalt and nickel. We may see this with stuff like copper, maybe with rare earths. Uh, is that going to stop us from pursuing decarbonization? I don't think so. It may affect the economics to some degree, and there may be some you know, commodity swings. Um, workforce development, I sort of similarly think like, if you if you step back and take a long enough time horizon on it, that's a solvable problem too. This is where the economy ultimately is pretty good at solving a problem. If you look at it in a short period of time, it can be like a, a huge bottleneck. And I have heard about it a lot. There's a bunch of areas, electricians, utility scale, renewables, installers, and engineers and stuff like that, where we do have a, a workforce development challenge. But But I still don't think it rises quite to the level of like, top tier problem. So that leaves the two that I think are actually potentially like really intractable problems that if they don't get solved, they don't get solved and you end up with um, an actual long-term halt or delay in the deployment of key technologies and that's permitting and transmission. And it's tough for me between those two. I think those those are both very difficult. Um, permitting is broader. So you could say permitting for Yes, for things like renewables and storage on the grid, but you also need permits for new mines and new uh, chemical refineries. You need permits for underground CO2 storage, right, which is a, a big challenge. So permitting is broader. Transmission is more acute because transmission is already immediately a huge problem for renewable development. There's actually just a study, I think, um, maybe last week or a couple of weeks ago that came out uh, from I think Lawrence Berkeley National Labs that uh, that found that permitting co- or, I'm sorry interconnection costs in PJM, which is the Mid Atlantic region of the U.S., but I don't think this is specific just to PJM, have gone up between two x to eight x um, for new generation and storage projects over the last three years. Interconnection costs are going up, but interconnection timelines are going up even more. And we, you know, one of the things that is undeniable about about decarbonization is that it inherently means we need to build a lot of new electricity generation and storage capacity. Uh, and I worry a lot about interconnection. So between those two, it's hard for me. I think if you force me to pick, I would probably pick permitting just because it will affect a broader swath of the market. You know, I um, I wrote down what my pick was also, and I also put down transmission and permitting. And the reason I said that is as I was thinking through these different problems, I thought there's nothing harder to move than a socially constructed barrier. Yes, that's exactly right. It's like, because it's not clear what breakthrough will really change it. Every other one of these things, I think, okay, well, there's smart people working on this. And if you figure out the right breakthrough, then you can really make progress. And when it comes to transmission and permitting, I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't follow logic. It's, I'm not quite sure how to start to move the needle on this. Yes, I 100% agree. I guess you've, you've distilled it better than I did, which is basically the rest of these, I think, not that I'm like a pure Chicago style economist, but I think the market ultimately solves most of them. Transmission and permitting don't fall into a category that the market ultimately solves necessarily because as you said, they're socially constructed. So yeah, I'm with you. 
And I want to hear another deep decarbonization draft. Could be for barriers. I think you should get Stephen Lacey back on here for old times. I think you should have your wife act as a judge with all of her experience of fantasy drafts with her RuPaul drag race draft picks. And I, I want to make that happen. All right. I'll tell I'll tell Lexi you said that. Uh I, I feel like she would be she'd be up for it, but I'm not sure I would like the result personally. I don't think she'd be a fair judge. Yeah, I can tell you now you would lose. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm going to follow up on that critical min- minerals part because we have another question from Phoebe at TigerCom. Um, and she asks, how big of a resource do you think battery recycling will be for future lithium and other minerals in the domestic supply chain? And more specifically, how far do you think recycling can go to close that cap? Not just old car batteries, but from phones and other small batteries as well. So I've looked at some of the math on this. I mean, I think the short answer is that um, you there is not enough supply of recyclable batteries today to make up for the majority or even close to the majority of the need for for critical minerals and this and you know you could get batteries recycled from phones and small batteries and things like that there but the total volume sort of pales of, of the materials that you get pales in comparison to what you're going to end up getting out of EV batteries themselves. And because we're in the steep part, or hopefully entering the steep part of the adoption curve of EVs, you know, what you're doing right now is recycling EV batteries from 10 or 15 years ago, and there were not that many electric vehicles 10 or 15 years ago relative to the number that we are producing today. So it just stands to reason that at the moment, Though battery recycling is important, it, it is not going to make up for the need for a lot of new virgin production of critical minerals. If you draw that forward a couple of decades and you get to the point where we're at kind of steady state, and let's just say electric vehicles at that point are 80% of all vehicles produced, uh, and we're up at the, you know, the the curve has flattened because we've been at that point for a longer period of time, then you can imagine that recycling plays a significant, doesn't totally fill the entire role. You don't get everything back and there was going to be continued growth in the economy. And so, you know, just as car sales have gone up over time, so electric car sales, but there it it starts to present a really significant portion. It's just going to take quite a while to get there because we need to go from today where electric vehicles or whatever it is, 6% of new vehicle sales up to steady state and then we need to sit at steady state for a while before the before the supply meets the demand. And what about those small batteries? Is the juice worth the squeeze? And what do you do with your old batteries? <laughs> oh man, what do I do with my old batteries? Um they like sit in a shelf in my house somewhere. <laughs> uh the juice is probably worth the squeeze um on on that stuff. It just doesn't add up to it doesn't add up to a really significant source of supply of the the minerals that we are really talking about for electric vehicle batteries in particular, which is mostly lithium, nickel, cobalt, aluminum, copper. Um, you don't get that much out of like phone batteries, ultimately. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just from the broader perspective, you know, it's not going to make up the difference. The next question is from Scott whose handle is a bunch of underscores followed by Scott, I think eight. So Scott asks, in a world with the marginal cost of energy going to zero, could desalinization soon be a reality? In a world. 
That's how I heard it when yeah. I was reading it, as soon as I said, in, in a, a world. world where the marginal cost of energy goes to zero. So there's a premise here that the marginal cost of energy is going to zero. And I think it's interesting to interrogate that premise. You hear that sometimes. Um, and the the sort of underlying assumption there usually comes down to one of two things that people are assuming. One is either uh, solar, mostly, where the presumption is that the cost of solar is going to keep declining and eventually, you know, get beneath that one cent per kilowatt hour barrier and then maybe keep going down and it's approaching zero over time. Or uh, it's, you know, a sort of nuclear file who's saying that the fusion in particular maybe is going to drive us the marginal cost to zero. Um, And I think both of those are somewhat flawed premises, ultimately. On the solar side, one... Uh, you know, in the shorter period of time, solar costs have been going up, not down. This is a function more of supply chain and import tariffs and stuff like that in the U.S. than anything else. But let's just be clear that, you know, the, the trend line at the moment is not toward zero. It's toward some higher number currently. Let's assume that that normalizes and solar costs do continue to decline over time. What you would say then is that the marginal cost of the marginal electron uh, delivered at a certain time of day trends towards zero. But that doesn't mean, one, that the marginal cost of energy overall trends towards zero. If you're looking to run, for example, a desalinization plant, which is really capital intensive, you probably want to run it 24-7 or close to that. Uh, and so you don't want to power it just off of solar. So then the question is, is the marginal cost of solar plus you know, whatever... Uh, you want to balance it out, which could be versions of batteries, could be other resources like geothermal, who knows. But you have to incorporate that into your thinking around the cost. And the second point is there's a difference between the marginal cost of produced electrons and the marginal cost of delivered energy. Um, and this is where the trend lines have been really distinct, where the marginal cost of production could be going down, but the cost of transmission distribution has been going up. And so overall delivered electricity prices have not been going down at all for customers, generally speaking, especially on a 8760, you know, like 365 days a year basis. So I, I do fundamentally believe that cheaper and cheaper renewables plus storage and, and some other technologies. Oh, I'm sorry, we haven't even talked about the nuclear thing. Like nuclear fusion may happen, but there's no reason to think that it, it drives costs down close to zero. We, we don't know yet what the cost of that electricity is going to look like. Um, and there are a lot of factors in that that could make it much, much more than zero. So all that said, um, I'm not sure I think that the marginal cost of energy is going towards zero. And I think it's particularly if you're looking, if you're trying to do something in a sort of current investment time horizon, say five years or 10 years, I think it's sort of dangerous to assume that. We see a lot of startups who are doing something where their sort of fundamental assumption is marginal cost of energy is going towards zero. And Maybe that that could be true over a longer time horizon, but show me how you can deliver positive unit economics with electricity costs as they are today. Uh, otherwise, I think you're you're sort of putting yourself in a pretty risky position. With all that said, the question was: if marginal cost of energy goes towards zero, will desalinization become a real thing? And the answer is: desalinization is a real thing. We do a lot of desalinization already today. Uh, might we do more of it if energy is cheaper? Maybe. 
Uh, there's a bunch of things that we might do if we end up with really cheap, abundant, clean energy. Uh, I think Sheldon Kimber at Intersect has a good like list of them. I think desalinization is on the list, but things like direct air capture, production of hydrogen and clean fuels, like there's a bunch of things, a bunch of other industrial processes that could be electrified in a world where, in a world where the cost of energy overall, particularly if it's 24 seven, uh, is getting cheaper delivered then yes, I think desalinization amongst a, no- a number of other things could take off as a result. But I think you have to be really careful with that premise. Yeah, agreed. I I often hear this in the conversation about Bitcoin mining too, which may be less pressing these days, but it often assumes that that's the direction we're heading for energy, which is a big assumption. So here is the last question I have for you today. It is from Patrick. And he had a question on the role of fertilizers and what what role they'll play in the climate transition. He asks, is this an area that will never be fully decarbonized because of the scale and need? Or are we just going to use methods to reduce its carbon footprint until we produce agriculture with minimum fossil fuel inputs? So we did an episode recently on ammonia, um, which is relevant to this. I mean, I think is is fertilizer an area that will never be fully decarbonized because of its scale? No, I think it will be fully decarbonized eventually. I think it will be a combination of multiple things that will do it. Um, and this is fertilizer production. I want to separate two things importantly, but let's start with fertilizer production. I think we will get a lot of green, quote-unquote green ammonia, um, which is ammonia produced with zero carbon hydrogen, which is where the majority of the emissions come from in the ammonia production process. We're seeing a lot of movement there already, and it's going to take time, but I think we'll do a lot of that. There's also alternative methods to produce fertilizer, which are not ammonia, um, but also are decarbonized in and of themselves. Uh, And then third, there are things that can reduce the need for fertilizer, for synthetic fertilizer. So there's microbial approaches, for example, uh, soil amendments, seed coatings, things like that, that mean you just need less fertilizer per unit crop that you produce. So we need less of it. We make it greener in the production. I think we'll do a lot of that. The thing that I think people don't spend enough time talking about is not the emissions from the production of fertilizer, but the emissions from the application of fertilizer. The the soil emissions that largely comes in the form of uh, nitrous oxide, uh, which is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, undermeasured. We don't even quite know how much of it we produce, but it comes from soil and it is impacted by the uh, by the use of fertilizer, the type of fertilizer that is used and how it is applied and how the soil is tilled and all these different complex things. But it's a, that's a bigger deal. So like total emissions globally from fertilizer, fertilizer production, I'm not going to get these numbers exactly right, but they're pretty close. Fertilizer production represents something like one and a half percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, maybe up to 2%. Uh, N2O emissions on fields in, in soil represents like 5%. So it's actually a bigger deal and I think a harder problem to solve. So the short answer to the question for me is that I I do think we will solve the problem of fertilizer production emissions. I want to see what we can do to accelerate progress on uh, soil N2O emissions reductions. Do you think we can address the emissions associated with agriculture without drastically and fundamentally changing how we do agriculture? I hope so, yeah. I, I generally think... I'm generally a techno-optimist, as you can imagine. 
And so I think we probably can, but I don't think it's as, there's no panacea as far as I can tell. So it requires a bunch of different things um, from changes in practices to new technologies to changing what crops we grow and where. I guess that is sort of fundamentally changing the nature of agriculture, but um, but I guess I wouldn't go so far as some people have said, you know, this this line of thinking can lead to ideas around like degrowth and stuff like that, which I, I do not believe we need in order to decarbonize. I think it just requires a lot of concerted effort and policy and money and, you know, what all this stuff requires. So that's all the questions I have today. It's so much fun to actually listen to you, you know, pick through some of these. I and on a personal level, so we are about to go on a trip together for a mutual friend's wedding. We're going to be heading to India. Have you ever been to India? I have not. Have you? I have. I have, but not the region we're going to. I've never been down to Mumbai. So one thing I'm curious about is how much you take your professional lens when you do these big trips or you go anywhere. Do you see like carbon emissions everywhere or systems, or do you kind of turn that off when, when you go to new places? Oh, I try my best to turn that off. Uh, there's like a joke, you've probably seen this happen, but like my, my wife and some of our friends, if they'll like, we'll be somewhere and they'll see solar on a roof, like, ooh, shale, solar. And I'm like, all right, thank you very much. I don't, I try not to think about it a whole lot. Uh, just because, you know, the whole point is to separate my personal life from my professional. If I'm on a if I'm on a vacation or a trip like that, with that said, you know, it's hard not to notice some of that stuff. So what? Solar. <laughs> I was like seeing the background. I'll just say that out. Uh, <laughs> Shale's wife just stuck her head into the office and said, Solar. <laughs> uh anyway. No, I don't know. I'm going to try. I'm not trying not to think about it. Though India is totally fascinating from a climate and energy perspective. I don't know. You, do you travel around the world thinking about climate stuff? I think, yeah, of course. Um, I think that there's ways that it's the the lens from which I view the world. And I know last time I went to India, it's hard to not notice the AQI in the air is 200 plus and all of the little diesel tuk-tuks that are going around. So I think there's there's very real impacts. You know, we've been advised to not run while we're in India. And so there's the it's where the climate crisis is really meeting the the standard of life. So there's some ways that I just like can't help but notice it. But as far as seeing a power station and thinking, oh, I should google that and see what what resources it's using or where it's getting its it's coal or whatever. That is not something I tend to do while on vacation. Well, Sarah, this was fun again. Thank you so much for coming back on and chattering with me for an hour. We'll we'll let the audience tell us how good our rapport was this time, but I, I suspect it was good enough that we'll, we'll have you back for another Ask Me Anything at some point. Gee, thanks. I look forward to it, maybe. <laughs> Sarah Golden is the VP of Energy at GreenBiz. Well, what questions did we miss that you really wanted us to cover? Or what did I get wrong in my responses? You can leave us a voicemail if you'd like. The number is 919-808-5832. Again, that's 919-808-5832. I know a few people still use voicemail. For the rest of you, you can email us at catalystpostscriptaudio.com, or you can find us on Twitter or on LinkedIn, or you can tell us what social platform we should be using instead. 
If you like the show today, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.